Well, hello, friends. How are y'all? Wonderful. If you have your Bibles or your phone apps, go ahead and open them to Ephesians. We are in chapter 2 today. We're going to look at the first 10 verses or so. And if you haven't been trekking with us for a while, if this is your first time, if I haven't met you yet, my name's Doug, and I'm really glad you guys chose to gather with us here this evening. Uh, Where we've been so far is we've been looking at the book of Ephesians, uh, handled the first chapter, uh, and really our overview statement that frames everything we do is this, we are saved by grace to walk this way. First three chapters of Ephesians, saved by grace. Next three chapters, four, five, and six, to walk this way. So we are firmly in the midst of talking about what it means to be saved by grace. And in fact, today, what we're going to focus in uh, quite uh, tightly is on this idea of salvation by grace alone apart from works. And we'll get into that in just a little bit. To begin, to, to frame what we're going to look at here today, uh, I want to talk about, uh, or I want to begin by asking this question here. And maybe it's something you guys have considered before, but has there ever been a time when you have taken credit for something that you didn't do? Just think about it. This is not a time to have testimony or bear testimony, right? Uh, but has there ever been a time when you've taken credit for something you didn't do? There was a, a pretty famous instance of this that took place uh, at NBC a few years ago. There was an anchor named Brian Williams, uh, who was kind of the premier anchor on the show. And uh, through a series of conversations about war and Middle East and other places, uh, Mr. Williams started to tell a story about how he was in a, a helicopter that received gunfire and that a rocket came and um, blew up a, a helicopter in front of him, and it was really crazy, and they had to land. And he gave this firsthand account of this horrific helicopter accident uh, in multiple venues in multiple ways, uh, and each time it got a little more salacious and a little more uh, uh, extensive and complex. And eventually uh, what came out in the midst of that is the truth because the people on the helicopters were like, yeah, I remember that experience, and Mr. Williams was nowhere involved in any of this stuff. And so NBC found out about it and was like, hey, what gives? And he admitted that he made up large portions of this story. And so they uh, basically put him on suspension for six months without pay and buried him in the anchor depth chart there. And now, I mean, he's, he's kind of a, a shell of his former glory in terms of his profile uh, on NBC and uh, across the platforms. Well, here's the reason why I tell this story. Because uh, here's what Brian Williams did. He forgot the truth of an event. And then because he forgot, because he misremembered the truth of any kind of particular event, as he began to share this story and give testimony about what happened to him, he told uh, an untruthful version uh, of that uh, testimony. He gave an untruthful testimony. And if this sounds like something wholly different uh, than you experience on a regular basis, uh, let me just uh, encourage you with this. I have found uh, in my experience of working with young people and working with people that many of us, whether we're aware of it or not, often bear false testimony about what's happened to us. And specifically, it happens around our conversion story. The way that Christians often talk about their own testimony of Jesus coming to their life uh, suffers from this same problem of borrowing authority or bragging or misremembering the truth. And because we misremember the truth on the inside, we forget to tell that part on the outside when we're talking to people. It has grave ramifications for how we interact with one another. 
And if this sounds a little bit convoluted or complex, let me just encourage you with this. What Paul's going to do today is he's going to say, listen, Christians, beloved, it's critical that you remember what your testimony is. And it's critical you remember why the testimony is true because of the truth of the gospel. Because all of that has ramifications on how we minister to one another. And so in, in light of this big idea, in light of the gospel, in light of all these things that Paul's going to talk to us about in uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, I want to invite us to pray and ask God to make us teachable here this morning or this uh, evening. So would you uh, pray with me as we get going? Jesus, I confess and admit that there are times in my life when I have misremembered the truth of the gospel and not intentionally, but maybe unintentionally or maybe in a lazy way, I have communicated my story to people uh, in a way that uh, allows me to borrow credit for something only you have done in my life. And I think if any of us, uh, as we think about this here today, we may remember those times when that's happened to us. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would help us to do three things. Number one, uh, get reoriented to what the truth of our testimony is. And number two, we would find a fresh the meaning of the gospel. And then we would, number three, come to understand um, how communicating our testimony to others uh, has an incredible ministry with our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers. And I pray that you give us plenty of opportunities to share the true testimony of the gospel's work in our lives with everyone we meet for your glory, for our good, and the good of the gospel's ministry in Orlando, the city that we love. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, and we are just going to go verse by verse here. Here's what Paul writes. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Okay, let me stop there. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you now. Uh, when I sent my notes off to Alec and the tech team, uh, there were like 700 fill-in-the-blanks. Maybe not 700, but there were a whole bunch of them. So we're going to be taking a lot of notes here today. I'm going to read a little bit of scripture, and then we're gonna, I'm just going to talk for a little bit, and we'll get back in. Because there's a lot, there are a lot of theological concepts going on here. And I want to make sure that we're picking them up so that we can put them together for a clear application at the very end. So the first one I want you to note here is this. Um, Paul basically says up front, you were once spiritually dead. When he says you were dead in the trespasses and sins, he says you were once spiritually dead. He's not saying you were physically dead. He's saying you're spiritually dead. Well, what does this mean to be spiritually dead? I was trying to think of an analogy for this, and the best thing I could think about was um, my kind of Apple universe that I live. Now, you may be Android people here today, but I'm a pagan, and so I have an Apple phone, uh, right? And so I've got the Apple phone right here, or iPhone or whatever it's called. I'm not great with technology, but I'll try to remember. And you can also see that I have the Apple Watch here, and I've got some Bluetooth speakers who are connected to my uh, Apple phone, and um, I've got other things that are paired with this device. You guys understand the concept of pairing. You have all these peripheral devices, and they're paired to this one device right here, Right? Well, uh, one day in my house, I had not charged my phone because I'm a millennial, and I just apparently don't believe in charging your phone. Anybody else have that problem? You're like, oh, I forgot to charge my phone today, right? It's typically, now here's the thing. There's a Venn diagram. There's a great overlap between people who forget to charge their phones and people who forget to eat, right? It's just the same kind of people. You're like, oh, yeah, I'm really, there's this pain in my stomach. Oh, hunger, right? I forgot to eat for the last four days, right? So <laughs> I just, I forgot to charge my phone, and the phone died, Okay. And my wife is texting me. Now, my phone was also attached to my Bluetooth speaker in my house. I was playing music on it. And so 
I just thought, hey, I got my phone paired to my watch and my Bluetooth speaker, so if my wife texts, I'll hear it in the house. And I'm just, I don't know, hanging around, playing video games, playing Wii Tennis, just like, okay, cool, whatever. Just thinking, again, if anyone needs me, they'll text me. And so I hear the garage door open. My wife is getting groceries. I hear the garage door open. I hear the like, like setting stuff in. And Natalie comes upstairs and she's like, where were you? I've been texting you for like the last 30 minutes. And I was like, oh. And I go over and I see my phone was dead. And because my phone was dead, I wasn't getting any dings here and nothing was coming through on the Bluetooth speaker. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. My phone died. And when my phone is dead, I don't get anything here and I don't get anything on the Bluetooth speaker. She's like, oh, well, I need your help getting the groceries up. And I was like, okay, I'm so sorry. So went and helped her get the groceries up and everything was cool in the house. But I thought about this story when I read through Ephesians 1, uh, or 2, verse 1. Because this is what Paul is saying. He says, when we're born, everybody, when we're born, we're born like a dead phone, okay? Our soul, the core internal part of who we are, it's like this dead phone. And all the rest of our being, our mind, our emotions, our actions, our relationships, these are all these peripheral devices, peripheral devices that are connected to our, the, the phone of our soul. And if this thing is dead, then none of these other things work correctly, right? Nothing else gets dinged, nothing else turns on. In other words, being spiritually dead means that you are living an unpaired life, okay? Now, when my phone is dead, my watch still works, but the Bluetooth is searching for its host, and it actually wears the, the battery down a little more quickly, uh, and the phone may do some other functions, but it doesn't work the way that it's supposed to work. This is like our mind. When our soul is dead, when we're spiritually dead, our mind works. It's, it can think. We can think good thoughts. We can uh, try to pursue Jesus with our minds. But if our, if our soul isn't turned on, if it's dead, then it's, our mind is unpaired from the rest of our being. Similarly, we can do good works. We can serve people. We can give charitably. We can go out and serve the city. But if our actions are unpaired from our souls, then they don't work the way they're supposed to. And this is what Paul is saying is the beginning point of every human being. We are all born spiritually dead. No matter how good our actions are, no matter how much our mind is thinking, no, much how our, no matter how much our emotions are ordered around good things, if our soul isn't turned on and it's the source of who we are, we are dead in the water and things don't work the way they're supposed to. And that's the beginning point of our testimony. Everyone is dead. Paul continues in verse 2. You're once dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires, the body, and the mind, and were by nature, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the, the second idea I want you to see from there is this... Uh, this idea here uh, in verse 3, it says, among whom we all once lived. Now, let me just kind of give you a summary here of what's going on. Paul is saying, hey, all of us are born dead. And then he describes these things. We walk in the passions of this world. We're ruled by the ruler of this world. We're given to all these terrible desires. We're following the prince of power, the spirits that now work in the sons of disobedience. And they're just, he's describing this life of people who are just living in clear disobedience. And Paul is speaking to two people, or two types of people. Remember, uh, this letter to the Ephesians is written to a broad audience. And Paul has the church in mind. And the church is comprised of two main groups of people, Jews 
and Gentiles. And so all the Gentiles, when they're reading this, Paul knows the Gentiles are going, yep, I remember when I walked in disobedience before I became a Christian. I remember all those things. I remember the pagan ways in which I lived. Yeah, I was definitely someone who was ruled by the, the, the ruler of this world, the spirit of the air, all this stuff. Okay, yeah, I remember all these things. But you also have this Jewish audience. These are like the church kids, right? These are kids who grew up in church, and they're like, I was raised in a good family. I don't know who you're talking about. The only time I was disobedient was when I watched VeggieTales two times, but I told my parents I only watched it one time, right? <laughs> like, I'm a good person. I, I mean, I understand theoretically that there was some disobedience going on, but this, this widespread disobedience, I don't get that. And so what, what Paul is saying, starting in verse 3, he's anticipating this objection from the, the Jewish crowd. And so he says this in verse 3. We all once, uh, verse three, among whom we all once lived. And when he says we all once lived, he means all of us, both Jews and Gentiles, both church kids and unchurched kids. Hey, I know not all of you may have lived in this outspoken disobedience, but keep in mind, this applies to all of us. And what Paul is, is basically saying is this, no matter your background, this deadness applies to all followers of Jesus. No matter your background, this deadness applies to all followers of Jesus. Um, one of the 65 million things I like about Isaac being on our staff is that he's a great conversation partner. And so I was talking with Isaac this week. Isaac is like king of the church kids on our staff. And I guess that would make me king of the unchurched kids. Uh, and there's kind of a 50-50 split among our staff team. Um, you know, Isaac's dad's a pastor. He's raised in church. Uh, Alex, dad's a pastor and a missionary. He was raised in church. David Branch's dad's a police officer, which is basically like a pastor with a gun. And, um, <laughs> right, he's raised in church. And, you know, his family is like the best family ever. And they planted a church and they're just super cool, right? Mom works on our staff and, uh, at First Orlando. I mean, David, there's all really good kids, right? And then there's like me. And like my dad was a pagan growing up. I grew up atheist. I grew up in a home where like we never talked about Jesus unless it was a swear word. Um, you know, Jason, uh, our worship leader here, grew up pretty pagan. Uh, Britt, definitely, if she, you've ever heard her story, she grew up unchristian, unchurched, just in a really kind of crazy environment. And then Jenny, who's on our staff, Jenny also, I would say, grew up in, in a pretty unchristian environment, even though there was some cultural Christianity going on. So we've got these two groups of people, and I'm reading this, and I'm, I'm reading through it, and I'm going like, yes, yeah, sons of disobedience, yeah, I get this. And like, I'm sure Jason's like, yep, I get that. But then you've got Isaac, and he, he when we were talking about this, he was like, hey, I understand this theoretically, but it's really hard for me in church world to understand that I know I was born dead, but I didn't feel born dead. It feels like I was born into a Christian family. And so it's harder for me to wrap my mind around this. And Paul is anticipating this kind of thinking, and he's now spoke, uh, speaking to at least those two main groups. He's saying, hey, verse 3, we all once lived this way, right? Whether we... Uh, know it experientially or not, I want to make sure I include everybody I can in this because we were all born spiritually dead. This is a part of all of our stories. It's the second thing I want you to pick up. Uh, in verse 4, this is when the turning point is. So keep in mind, we were all, everybody, church kids, non-church kids, born dead. Our, our body doesn't work like it's supposed to. We're living an unpaired life. This is the state of all of us. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raises us up with him and has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages 
he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The next thing I want us to understand is this. But God made us spiritually alive in Jesus. But God made us spiritually alive in Jesus. In other words, he turned on our souls, our iPhone souls, right? He put charge into that battery, and now everything is paired, and everything is is starting to work like it's supposed to. Things are turning on. um, Everything's starting to become integrated. That's how we operate uh, in our lives here. And I want to make sure we understand at this point through verse 7, Paul has now just concluded and said, hey, if you're a believer in Christ, if you're a follower in Christ, whether you're a church kid or a non-church kid, if you're now following Jesus, this is your testimony. And everyone has the same testimony. It's an equal ground. We were all born spiritually dead, no matter where we came from. But God made us alive in Christ. That's it. That's our entire story. We were all born dead, and it was God who made us alive in Christ. We were spiritually dead. He resurrected us. He brought us to life in Christ, and he's going to shower his kindness on us in Christ Jesus in the coming age. That's our testimony. No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, if any time someone comes up to you and they say, man, I just noticed something different about you. Like, you know, you seem to have like a really good attitude and a really good work ethic. Like, what's going on? Like, how are you such a good person? What, what Paul is encouraging us and admonishing us to say in that moment is to say, listen, you want to know I'm a good person? I was spiritually dead and God made me alive. That's why I'm a good person now. That's what you're seeing in me. It was that I was a dead person who's now brought to life. That's a pretty transformative thing. Paul wants us to understand this is our testimony. And there's an important reason why Paul wants us to understand that this is our testimony. And so he begins to explain why this is so crucial in the next few uh, verses. They're the verses that we memorize most in this passage, verses 8 and 9 with verse 10 brought on. I want to read this for you right here. Paul writes this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. The next thing I want you guys to understand is this, By grace we were all made alive in Jesus. The reason or... Rather to say, the motivating factor behind God making us alive in Jesus, really crucial, was by grace. And I want to define grace for you. Grace here is defined as unmerited favor of God. It's the unmerited favor of God. You don't merit grace. You don't work and earn things and then God gives you grace. Oh, that's really good. Let me give you some grace. It's the unmerited favor. Or to put it this way, we get what we don't deserve. That's grace defined. Okay? So... Uh, it's pumpkin spice latte month at Starbucks, right? So everybody, you know, is going to Starbucks, going crazy. Um, and so uh, I was at a Starbucks uh, recently and sat down and was having a conversation. And you guys may have experienced this. If you're in Starbucks long enough, this may happen to you. This barista walks up to me and, and like, interrupts. Um, and they do the, like, Starbucks uh, barista thing. We're like, um, excuse me. They move to low, low tones, right, with a deep throaty. Excuse me, sorry to interrupt here. We made an extra pumpkin spice latte. Uh, would you like this? And I was like, um, wait, like me? And they're like, yes, sir, would you like this pumpkin spice latte? I was like, oh, do I need to pay you for this? They're like, no, 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 sir, it was our mistake. We just want to give this to you. And I was looking at him like, you just want to give me this pumpkin spice latte? Did you spit in this? Like, like what's the situation? They were like, no, sir, we just want to give this to you. And I was like, well, what do you want me to do with it? They are like, well, you could drink it. And I was like, 
I just drink this pumpkin spice latte you're giving to me. I've been to Starbucks before. I know the routine. I show up, I order, then I give you a lot of money, then you give me a drink. I don't understand this thing. They're like, sir, we just want to, if you don't want it, we'll go to the next table. And I was like, well, come on, man. I'm a Christian. Of course I want a PSL. Like, <laughs> there's no chance of me not wanting to drink this, but I'm just, I'm, cons- con- I'm just, I don't know the arrangements. And this is what they were doing. Uh, with, with an unmerited way, they just were giving me something that I didn't deserve. The beautiful goodness of a pumpkin spice latte that was going to go into my esophageal cavity area and into my stomach so that it could provide some creamy goodness at the core of my being, right? And it was just free. And this is what Paul's saying. Hey, why did God take someone who was dead and make them alive? Grace. Just unmerited favor. He just, because he loves us. Why did God create the, you ever thought about this? Why God created the universe? I mean, think about it. It's Father, it's Son, it's Holy Spirit. They're in some eternal time playing Texas Hold'em. They're just like having a good time. Maybe it's Brazilian Uno, maybe it's uh, Domino's, I don't know. It's probably Brazilian Uno, right? Right, okay, yeah. All the Brazilians were like, obviously, right? This is what the Trinity plays. They're just having a good time, having community. And the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit said, this is such a good thing. We should share it with others. And they're like, there are no others. Well, let's solve that. Boom. And they created the world, right? And they just decided to, in an unmerited way, in a gracious way, just share their love with creation. There's nothing creation did to earn that. They just said, here, the pumpkin spice latte of our undying, lavish love to you right now, right? It's by grace that God made us alive together. Verse 9, not as a result of works so that no one may boast, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The next idea here from these two verses is grace will lead to good works. We tend to stop at verse 9. It's by grace you've been saved. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. And we're done, right? But Paul continues here. He says, we are his workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by works but we're saved into good works. And one of the ideas we like to to live with here at the table is this idea that um, we don't work towards the cross. We don't, Um, but we do work from the cross. When God gives us grace, he graciously moves us into this life where we suddenly have this desire for good works. When we get paired correctly to our soul, it's like God also also births in us this desire to be kind to one another and to love the poor and the marginalized and to want to serve people and to want to join a ministry at a local church and try to serve them. And they're just, we want to start giving of our money and restricting our lifestyle so we can fund the kingdom. There are all these things that start to happen in us and we just were like, oh, I want to exercise some effort towards something, right? Uh, that's what Paul is saying. When he makes you alive in Christ, he makes you alive. And one of the things you know that's a marker of you being alive in Christ is you want to start using some energy towards the kingdom type things. And so uh, a good way of thinking about this, because people get confused about the idea of works, is that, listen, grace, this grace I just talked about, it's not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to something else, but it's not opposed to effort. And Paul is saying that once grace comes into your life, grace is going to move you towards these good works. Just put a pin in that. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. The next thing I want you to understand from this passage is that Christians will have a tendency towards boasting in their testimony. Here's the problem. We're dead. God makes us alive. He makes us alive by grace towards good works. 
and somehow starting to do these good works, there's this tendency that goes on, and Paul's anticipating it. It's that once we start working in light of grace, we, we somehow have this new temptation to want to start boasting and bearing a false testimony about everything that's happened in our lives, right? Christians have this tendency towards boasting in our testimony. So Paul uh, says this in verse 8, it's not a result of works. Why? So that no one will boast. And this is the reason... Uh, the philosophical reason that drives Paul to connect our testimony, which he talks about in 1 through 7, with this idea, this concept of grace and the gospel in 8, 9, and 10. He says, you got to understand something. The reason that people start misremembering their testimony is because in light of grace, in this life of good works, they have this tendency to want to boast and take credit for things that aren't theirs. And so you've got to remember both of these things to counteract that. Let me give you a, a practical example of this. And I want to give you a practical example in, in two cases. Because remember, you're probably here in maybe one of three camps. Maybe you're not a believer who's here today and you're kind of exploring Christianity and that's totally cool. Uh, maybe the gospel for you is something that you just want to focus on here today. That's great. But maybe you're in a second camp, which is a camp that I'm kind of the king of on our staff, which is the, the non, non-Christian kids, kids raised in a non-Christian home. So I was raised in a non-Christian home. I was dead Okay? God made me alive in Christ and immediately called me into this life of good works. And I've been trying to follow Jesus in this. But I've noticed a tendency when someone asks me about my testimony to start describing my testimony in this way. I will say this. Unintentionally, with no ill will, I'll go, yeah, you know, I wasn't raised in a Christian family. And somewhere along the way, I got really curious about kind of the bigger things in life. And so I started doing all this research and uh, you know, researched all these world religions. And then I got on to Christianity and it made sense. And so I believed in Jesus and he saved me. And now I'm following Jesus, right? And what I meant to say was I was a curious person and uh, God saved me and now I'm following Jesus. What I think people hear oftentimes is this. My curiosity is what moved me towards believing in Jesus. My my works moved me towards believing in Jesus. And so if I meet people and tell them that version of the testimony, what they're likely to interpret is, oh, I'm not a curious person. So if I want to believe in Jesus, I'm going to have to be curious first, and then Jesus is the solution to that, and then we'll move forward. And so if I'm an uncurious person, then Christianity is not for me. And so I'll just stay over here in my lostness and just try to manage, right? And I think as people who are uh, from a non-Christian background, that's how we can communicate a gospel of works, that somehow uh, our works, however we define them, are a precursor to believing in Jesus or to being made alive again. And what I should say to people is, listen, listen, listen. You know a difference in me. You see a difference in me. Here's how that uh, difference came about. I was dead, right? I was completely dead, and God started making me alive in Christ. I was aware of being made alive in Christ on September 10th, 1997, when I walked an aisle and prayed a prayer. But God is the one who orchestrated all this. He even raised all these curious questions in my heart, knowing that he's the only one who could answer those questions. And so it was even God who was leading me through that curiosity period to have me come to believe in Jesus. I was dead. God made me alive. And anything you see in my life after that is all glory and praise going to him, because without him, I never would have been saved. That's how I should explain things. Because a person hearing that hears this. Hey, you know what? I may not be a curious person. But it doesn't seem like curiosity 
is a component of being someone who's in a relationship with God. It seems like the only prerequisite for being in a relationship with God is that you're spiritually dead. And you know what? I'm a non-Christian. I know I'm spiritually dead, right? I'm aware of my deadness. And so if the only solution to me being dead is God making me alive, then I am on board for that. There are no other works. But there's another way that we uh, can tend to talk about this in terms of Boasting our testimony. This one is the, uh, the one I told you, by the way, on your bulletin is the I saved myself with my good works. Sorry, I got that out of order. I saved myself with my good works. That's me going, well, I was curious, and that's how it kind of started this whole process. No, 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 God made me alive from that. The second way that we tend to boast is this. Someone else saved me with their good works. Someone else saved me with their good works. And this is the example of church kids. Right? Uh, I hear this all the time. And so if you're a church kid, I want to talk about this in the same way, on the same kind of humility level that I talk about for myself. I mess up my testimony all the time. I uh, take glory from God and borrow that all the time. Uh, I notice that some church kids can do the same. So there's equal footing here, right? But um, you hear this all the time. You know, you guys are at work. You guys are in the neighborhood. You're talking to people. You guys know this. You'll have these conversations. Maybe you're on a college campus. Someone notices a difference in you, and they go, hey, man, I've just noticed there's something different about you. And, like, uh, I don't know. What, like, is there something going on? And they'll kind of lead with this question. You, you maybe had this before. Like, oh, like, there's something different about you. Did you grow up in a religious family? Right? And what they're saying is, did you grow up in a religious family, and that accounts for the difference in your life? And you have a moment to tell your testimony. And here's what a lot of church kids I think will say, well-intentioned, but it's, it's a little bit wrong from this perspective. They'll say, yeah, I was raised in a Christian family, and God saved me, and now I'm following him. And what we mean to say is, I was raised in a Christian family, and my parents and everyone I knew was constantly moving me towards the gospel, and because I was dead, God made me alive, and now I'm following Jesus. But what our non-Christian friends often hear, I'm afraid, is, oh, so being in a Christian family is a precursor towards believing in Jesus. And therefore, because I've never been raised in a Christian family, and there's no chance of that ever happening, this Christianity thing must not be for me. Right? So sometimes what we communicate when we forget the order of the testimony is this. Someone else's actions, namely my Christian family, are what predicated me believing in Jesus in the first place. And so if I don't have that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of screwed on this whole deal. But here's, here's the thing I want you to remember. Like, because there's, I don't think you guys are in here going, oh yeah, it was my Christian family, that's why I became a Christian. I think a lot of Christian people don't believe that at all. Or it's not my church, it's not my family, it's whatever. But when we think about our conversion, we go, ah, yeah, it's really hard for me to think about living in this disobedience and all this stuff. So, so maybe my Christian family had more of a role in this than not a role in this, and I don't know how to talk about it, uh, but, but it was a prominent role. And here's the reality I think we have to, to keep in mind is that um, alive people don't make dead people into alive people. Have y'all thought about this? Just because someone's alive, they can't turn a dead person into an alive person. Only God can take us from death to life. And so if you were raised in a Christian family, that's great. Here's how to tell your testimony. Yes, I was raised in a religious family, and it didn't really have that much effect on me ultimately. I was a dead person, and God made me alive, and now I'm following him. 
right? And I'm so thankful for my religious family, which helped move me towards the gospel. But you don't need a religious family in order to become a Christian. You just have to know you're a dead person in need of a Savior, and God will make you alive by his grace and move you on. And that's how that works. So Paul is saying, do not uh, give in to this tendency towards boasting uh, in your testimony. Only Jesus is someone who can earn your aliveness. You can't earn it. Only Jesus is someone who can earn it. Now, let me give uh, three final thoughts on grace here. So this is everything Paul said on grace. So just to remind you guys, it's very simple. Here's our testimony. I was born dead. God made me alive by his grace. And now I'm following him in good works. That's your testimony. Right? It's everyone's testimony in the room. Let me offer three additional things uh, on this here. Um, and then uh, we'll have an awesome response time. Number one, grace covers the same distance for everybody. Grace covers the same distance for everybody. And here's what I mean by that. Um, Let's just say on this side of the stage here, this is what it means to be dead in Christ or dead uh, spiritually, okay? And right here at the middle of the stage, we'll just move this over. This is the cross. I don't know if there's a way to make this look like a cross, but whatever, okay? So here's the cross, right? This is, what, this is the, the experience of being a non-Christian, and this is, I'm, God's making me alive, I'm becoming a Christian. And way over here is maybe like, you know, you're really spiritually mature or something like that, right? Okay, it's, this is like your grandma, your grandpa who's like super loves Jesus, right? Okay, um, as I talk to some of my uh, friends who are church kids, church kids will say this, I know that I was born here, but it really feels like when I woke up and kind of when I became a Christian, I was right here. And the jump to going from my family, which was Christian, into following Jesus, it was really hard to distinguish between when I wasn't a Christian and when I was a Christian, right? It was like I was born, and as soon as I gained consciousness, it was like Jesus, and I just walked across the line, and here I am into the Christian life. And maybe as a church kid, that's how you feel because you had Christian parents, and like from an early age, you would sin, and your parents would sit you down and go, that was sin. Let's talk about what sin is. How do you spell sin? S-I-N. Yes, that was sin, right? What is sin? Uh, It's breaking God's rules. Yes, that's right. Okay, and so what do we need in sin? We need a Savior. And who's your Savior? Jesus. And how do you pray? Well, you go to Romans Road. Good, right? Like from an early age, you know the drill. And so the minute that you kind of understand abstract thought, you go, oh, I'm a sinner. And if I don't deal with this, it proves fatal. Jesus, I need you. You pray to receive Christ. You move across, right? That's your experience. My wife prayed to receive Christ. She grew up in a Christian family. She prayed to receive Christ when she was four, okay? When she was four, and she remembers it. She knows where she was uh, because we, she grew up super Southern Baptist. She knows where she was. It was time-stamped. She sent the text message out and, like, let her pastor know it was in this moment, and the pastor came by with the FBI, and they were like, we verified this with CSI. You're saved, right? Like, she knows that she knows that she knows on that moment. Walk the aisle, the whole thing, right? So for her, I'm like, what's it like growing up as a, you know, a dead person who's just super sinful? She's like, well, you know, I hit my sister one time. Like, I mean... I was in real debauchery there. And then, uh, you know, like as soon as I did that, I was like convicted and I came. I was like, I need to believe in Jesus, right? And that's what it feels like for her. So it seems like for her and for I think many of you guys, the distance between not being a Christian and being a Christian seems really short, right? It seems like a distance thing. When I talk about it, I'm like, man, my dad took me to bars growing up all the time. Like he told me dirty jokes and, you know, had me, you know, my, my wife was, 
memorizing scripture early. My dad was having me memorize dirty jokes so that he could put me on top of a bar and I would, you know, all his friends would be drinking and I'd be like, so, I'm not going to tell you guys the dirty joke right now. <laughs> but just assume I know what that joke is, right? Um, and so I would tell all these dirty jokes and uh, then his, his friends would laugh and I'd be like, ha, 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 right? So the distance for me from going from debauchery towards following Jesus seems like it's much longer, Right, And when I tell my story versus my church friend's stories, it seems like I had to travel a lot more to get there. And so we look at this and we go, hey, I know Paul says we all have this same starting point, but this seems like it's, it's a lot different. And I want you guys to understand, grace, grace here covers the same distance for everybody. It covers the same distance. I think the difference that we feel experientially is that family or community around us can actually speed it up a little bit, right? You may have been here when you were a fetus and you had a Christian family around you and every time you sinned, every time you did something wrong that was opposed to God's kingdom ways, you had family that was nudging you towards the cross and nudging you towards the cross and nudging you towards the cross so that when you finally got recognition of all this, it was like, oh, this is easy, ba-boom, right? It was a very easy jump for you. But guess what? That distance was the same because grace covers the same distance for everybody. That's what Paul says. We're all born right here. For those of us who are raised in unchristian families or unchristian backgrounds, every step we took towards Jesus was something that was a little bit on our own, so to speak, right? We didn't have anybody help and nudge us towards it. We would take a step and we'd be like, is this the right thing? And then we move over here and they're like, oh, that is, that's not right. We're like blind people trying to figure this out. And we probably the thing that uh, catalyzed us and sped us up the most was we came into a church community and they started talking to us about what doctrine was and about the Bible. And we were like, oh, it makes sense now. And the church community around us helped us close the speed of that so that we could step across. But know this up front, no matter whether you're a church kid or not, grace covered that same distance, okay? Number two, grace provides the same starting point and the same finish line. Grace provides the same starting point and the same finish line. My concern uh, is that our memory of salvation, our memory of our testimony of conversion is reflexive. And I've actually seen this borne out in a lot of sociological studies of uh, Christians, people who are raised in a, in a church home and begin, again, they, they wrongly believe that it was a short step for them to the cross, those same people oftentimes only make a short step past the cross. Meaning they go, hey, it didn't take me very long to get to the cross, and so I'm not going to go very far from the cross. I'm just going to kind of stay here as like a baby Christian for the rest of my life. Because I don't really know what it's like to kind of have to to, this movement thing is really hard for me. And so a lot of church kids, uh, it was really easy for them to become a Christian. It's really easy them for, to think about being a Christian. And for them, being a Christian is just one or two steps away from the cross that they just stay here. When you look at contrast, again, people with my story, we're aware of that distance pretty experientially. And so for us, we understand how to move way over here because we've had to actively step every step of the way with no one helping us. And so this discipleship thing seems a lot easier for us on this side of the cross. And my concern is if we keep operating with that mindset that grace has nothing to do with distance, that it's really all we're born into a Christian family, we'll forget this, but keep in mind, God provides the same starting point. We understand that. And guess what? He also provides the same ending point for all of us. God's desire for you, if you're here today and you're a believer, 
is not to just stay a baby Christian forever. There's so much more he has for you in this Christian life. He wants you, when you're done, to be at glory. Glory is that final step of the sanctification process where God grows you spiritually, and you get to a point where you're just loving Jesus at such a capacity. Jesus is like, can, can I break through heaven and just pull him up now, right? I just love this person so following me, sharing the gospel with everybody. He's leading people to Christ. He's starting ministry in his workplace. This is, I just love this. Father, can I just pull him into heaven now, right? Right? Can I just do that? And that point, when you get to that point where you're grandma, grandma or grandpa's faith, you're the old person in your church who just loves Jesus, and you walk through the lobby, everyone gets saved again, right? Uh, <laughs> And like every time you give to support a ministry, that ministry flourishes, right? At that point, God's just like, you're the best. Come on, come on, dude, right? And pulls you up into heaven. And guess what? That's not just something for the special saints. That's for everybody. No matter if you grew up a church kid or an unchurched kid, God's desire for you is to be in that kind of relationship. And so please don't let your churched background hold you back from everything Jesus wants for you in this life by grace. It's the same starting point. It's the same finishing point for everybody in this room who wants to follow Jesus. Finally, grace is unmerited. Therefore, it's always available. Grace is unmerited. Therefore, it's always available. If there's nothing you can do to earn it, then that means it has to come from somewhere else. And if it comes from somewhere else, you need to account for who that somewhere else is. In this case, uh, Paul tells us that grace comes from God, the creator God of the universe who lavishes his love and his grace on everyone. And the image we get of God, the kind of God that he is, is best summed up in the story of the prodigal son. If you haven't ever heard this story, uh, basically, here's how it goes in a nutshell. There's a dad. He was a, you know, man of means, and he had two sons. And he tells both his sons, I'm going to give you guys inheritance. Uh, this is what I have for you. And the older brother says, thanks. And he keeps working on the farm and helping out with the dad. The younger son goes, I want my inheritance now because I want to go to Vegas and party. And so the dad, he doesn't go, well, that's not a very wise decision. He goes, okay, well, you can have a portion of it now. And uh, I'll give it to you. So son goes, ha, got it. And he gets the black card. And he gets on the flight to Vegas. And he parties with his friends. And eventually, as you guys know how this works, he runs out of money. And so he decides to become this, uh, you know, worker in, you know, this Vegas-like town. It's not really Vegas in the Bible, but it's a Vegas-like town. Uh, and so he's, he decides to become a worker in this Vegas-like town. And uh, after a while, like, there was the partying phase, which was really fun. Then there was the working phase, which was less fun. And after a while, he keeps moving down in these jobs. And finally, it says he's uh, tending to these pigs in a field. He's basically this hired hand on this farm. And he's hungry, and he's, he's sitting down, and he's looking at the pig slop. And it's this very interesting phrase. It says, and he came to his senses, right? God's unmerited grace hits this prodigal son. His unmerited favor just awakens him. This thing that God has been doing all along in making these dead things come to life, it awakens his senses. And he goes, oh, my goodness, there's, there's this stuff here. Uh, I, I ate better at my father's house, and so he starts devising this plan. He goes, okay, I'm going to save up money, get a plane flight back home, and I'm going to 
walk up to my father, and you can tell him, he's like, yeah, I'm going to walk up to my father, and this is what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, all right, I'm going to say, uh, Dad, I know I've sinned against you and sinned against heaven. If you'll just accept me back, uh, I'll come and I'll work for you, and it'll be all good, right? So he's got his plan. And so he gets back into town, and he gets out, you know, takes Uber up, and, you know, how he has money for Uber, I don't know. But he gets there, and um, he starts walking up the long driveway, and his dad, meanwhile, is sitting on the front porch as if if he's been waiting for his son to come back all this time. And the son starts walking back towards dad, and he's like rehearsing. He's like, okay, yeah, okay, so first I'm going to say this, right? And the dad sees him and runs down, meets him halfway in the driveway there, puts his arms around him, doesn't even let him get into his whole spiel. He's like, dad, I've sinned against you and sinned against heaven. There's like a hug that comes on. He's like, my son, my son, I'm so glad you're back. Hey, we're going to kill an animal. We're going to put it on the pit. This is going to be like a Brazilian barbecue. We're making this happen. We're celebrating, puts a ring on his finger, puts a coat on him, uh, which is the equivalent of like a bomber jacket and a gold chain, I guess, uh, today. Uh, He's looking real swaggy, and the son's just like completely disoriented. He's like, what's going on here? Like, I've just, you know I like wasted all of the money you gave me and lived like, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Let me just tell you, I'm glad that stayed in Vegas because I did terrible things in Vegas, right? People in the hangover saw what I did in Vegas and were like, man, you partied way too hard, right? Like there were bad things going on and yet you're giving me all this stuff. Like, I don't understand. Hold on, can I just go through my sales pitch again? The dad's like, no need to go through the sales pitch. I love you, you're my son. Come here and enjoy what is yours. The God that we serve is a lavish God. He loves us lavishly. And so if this grace that we receive is unmerited, guess what? It's always available to us. And so no matter where you are today, whether you're right here or 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 right here, guess what? All that lavish grace is available. And everything God wants for you is still available today. And he wants to come and have a wonderful relationship with you like the father to that son. And he wants to move you on in grace into this life of good works that is so satisfying that you, he wants to get you to this point where you are the old person in your church who is loving him so much that he just wraps his arms around you and takes you up to heaven. All of that is available for you today from the God who loves us. And it's all because of his grace that he gives us.